0: The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. The Bowery Boys episode 200, Jane Jacobs, saving the village. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys.
1: Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Boys. Hi there, welcome
0: to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Tom, happy 200th episode Uh, of the Bowery Boys. (laughs) I can't believe we're at this moment. You don't look a day over 100 episodes, Greg. (laughs) Well, it's because I'm basking in the glow of the individual in which we're featuring this afternoon, an individual that has changed the face of New York City, has changed the face of many American cities, and celebrating the 100th anniversary of her birth. This would be Jane Jacobs, the journalist, thinker, and... Go ahead, call her activist. And activist, sure. (laughs) Community activist and someone who loved New York so much that she was ready to go to bat with the city itself to save her neighborhood, which in this case was Greenwich Village.
1: In fact, Greg, I would argue that Jane Jacobs didn't just love New York, but she loved cities. She was somebody who fought for cities throughout most of her life. She was an urban street fighter, or at least a fighter for urban streets. (laughs) In today's show, we're going to talk about her career and her life living in the West Village, but we're also really going to focus on a number of battles, very public battles, three in particular, that threaten to completely do away with, demolish big parts of downtown neighborhoods.
0: No, A couple of these battles would put her in direct opposition with Parks Commissioner Robert Moses, who was the subject of our 100th episode. He was, of course, the powerful city planner of New York City who transformed New York City via new highways that often tore through neighborhoods. Now, Jacobs is often presented as a knight in shining armor, and for much of the story, she will be the heroine at the front of our tales here. Although, we will get a little nuanced about her legacy near the end of the show. Mm
1: -hmm. And we have a special surprise. Uh, In today's show, we will be joined... Uh, by the voice, by a recording of Jane Jacobs.
0: Now, some of you may not be aware necessarily of who Jane Jacobs is, so we're going to give you a proper introduction with this show. But I think that you are aware of her and her spirit and her legacy every time you walk through the streets of the West Village. And so, ladies and gentlemen, on that note, I present to you Jane Jacobs.
2: At this point, I might have been guilty of some wishful thinking myself specifically that if you work something out and you explain why things that uh, have been tried are failing, everybody can see they're failing, and then go on to explain what should be done instead and try to make it as clear as possible, well, then the people responsible for these things will uh, change their ways, won't they, and uh, (laughs) start doing it the right way. Uh, I'd had a little experience that saved me from that wishful thinking. And it was precisely this the articles that I had been writing for the Architectural Forum. I had been writing there for architects and planners and saying a few of these things. I would get a big hand from them, uh, what good ideas, how right you are, uh, yes indeed. And then uh, nothing would happen, everything would still, uh, still be done as always. So I decided that, really, if anything was ever going to get changed, it was going to have to be changed by citizens resisting what was done to them and by citizens understanding cities and um, insisting that the right things be done in their areas. You know that, um, that thing about uh, an inert object? Well, there is nothing, nothing more inert than a bureaucracy, than a government bureau. There is nothing more in earth than a planning office. It gets going in one direction, and it is never going to change of its own accord.
0: So that was Jane Jacobs in a 1962 appearance at a uh, luncheon, a books and authors luncheon. That was recorded for WNYC. So 1962, you said? 1962. So she had already published her masterpiece, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But we're getting ahead of ourselves here, of course. Why don't we go to the very beginning, 100 years ago?
1: Right. So Jane Jacobs was born, I take it, in 1916. (laughs) May 4th, 1916,
0: but not in New York City. She was born in Scranton, Mm -hmm. Scranton, Pennsylvania.
1: Like Joe Biden.
0: Like Joe Biden, exactly. She was born Jane Butzner, the daughter of a doctor and a nurse, An incredibly intelligent child, although she did not do that well in school, and in fact, after high school, did not immediately even go to college. She took stenography courses. And even as a teen, she worked at a local newspaper in North Carolina where uh, she had lived with her aunt.
1: So she wanted to be a
0: journalist. She was incredibly curious, incredibly inquisitive, of course. And so this is what sort of led her eventually to the road of journalism. And as it would turn out, she'd be incredibly brave, for as a young woman, in 1935, she and her sister moved to Brooklyn. Her sister, Betty, worked at a department store over in the Fulton Mall area, and they lived together in an apartment on Orange Street mm. in Brooklyn Heights. So the interesting thing about Jane Jacobs imagining her on Orange mm-hmm, Street, in Brooklyn that, Heights. that there's like an alternate universe here where Jane Jacobs falls in love with Brooklyn Heights and perhaps does some of the things that she would later do in the village, doing them here in Brooklyn, right? Because it's also equally made of beautiful brownstones. Well, she didn't stay there that long, I'm afraid. She loved to wander through the city. She liked to ride her bike. She liked to take the subway and go to places randomly. Well, one day she took the subway, the IRT on the west side, she got off at one stop with the curiously named Christopher Street, and she liked the name of Christopher Street. So she just got out mm. there and found that amusing, and began wandering around this neighborhood. And so, what greeted her there was, of course, the first of two loves of her life,
1: Marie's crisis. Well, the building was certainly there. Right, yes. she could have just gone across the street. <laughs> I don't. I don't think she went to it. That a, would have been an alternate universe. A,
0: that's a downstairs cabaret for those that don't know it's but, a
1: it's a sing-along sure, show tune sure. bar well but it's oh more no than just a cabaret. no
0: it's this is larger here she fell in love with greenwich village itself instantly fell in love mm. she said quote in midtown i remember i always felt so depressed everyone looked so well dressed and with it but down on christopher street people looked the way i felt hmm. it's going to be here that her theories of city planning come from and would always be a backdrop for Jane's
1: entire life here in New York. And and this is the 1930s, like 1934, 35? Right, um, 1935. And so what was the village in 1935? Yeah, so what was the charm of the village here? So, and by the way, we're talking,
0: and we're talking here in the 1930s, Greenwich Village and West Village, it's all...
1: It's all we're, one it's, village.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's it, The words West Village didn't even appear in the New York Times until the 1940s. Okay. And we're also talking here about what's called the South Village, which is most of the area underneath Washington Square Park into Soho, right? So, And that was an Italian neighborhood at this time.
1: Okay. And we're also talking about the Depression.
0: in the throes of depression. But what makes the village so interesting, even today and back then especially, is its rebellion to the grid plan. Most of the West Village is small little intimate streets, right, that sort Mm -hmm. of clash against that grid plan, that go all directions, and it creates all of these desirable little small corners and alleyways and little twists and turns that makes it quite unexpected.
1: We consider them to be desirable today, but they always haven't been. They they sort of followed their own logic.
0: Of course, when you say the village, people also know that the sort of shorthand for New York Bohemia, and has been since the late 19th century, uh, this foundation of the arts and more free thinking mm-hmm. down here uh, may have been one of the things that she found very appealing, actually. By the 1930s and 40s, you already had artists that were centralized over on West 8th Street, north of Washington Square, was a big artist enclave. The village was, of course, by the late 1940s, the Heart of the Beat movement. All of their hangouts and all these music venues would be there. Of course, the 50s folk music scene would then happen, as well as the gay and lesbian scene would also flock to this neighborhood as well.
1: So back in the 1930s then, when when Jane is getting out of the subway and kind of walking around, she's seeing some element of this counterculture right. as well as kind of village-style street life. She's seeing it and she's feeling it. So when was Jane lucky enough to... F- to move
0: herself to the village. Almost immediately after she discovered it, she and her sister moved to 55 Morton Street in the fall of 1935. There she lived and began her life as a freelance writer. By the early 1940s, she and her sister moved into a new apartment at 82 Washington Place. So that's another apartment here in Greenwich Village. Is
1: that about like around 6th Avenue? Yes, just been very
0: near the park, just a block away. It was during a party in March of 1944 that her sister brought home a guy from work, and his name was Robert Jacobs. He was an architect, and both Betty and Robert worked at Grumman Aircraft Engineering Corporation because out in Long Island, right? Because it's World War II. Yeah, so it was a hugely popular and one of the biggest employers in Long Island, actually. Well, Robert met Jane, and well, as Jane would later say, quote, Cupid really shot that arrow, unquote. <laughs> So, here are her two loves here together, in Greenwich Village and this man she loves, Robert. In 1947, she and Bob buy a three-story building at 555 Hudson Street, and this is where she will live for the remainder of our story here. They fix the place up,
1: and right. it was their home. And the neighborhood, which year was that, 47? 1947. Right. So... So this corner of today's West Village, which is so trendy and so unbelievably expensive today, was not that way at all. Obviously, in 1947, it was working class. uh, There were longshoremen who lived around. Yeah, It wasn't a super wealthy neighborhood.
0: No, but it was a strong community. It was probably a little salty, a little rough around the edges. Mm -hmm. And also, I should add that what what Jane and Robert are doing here is kind of the opposite of what people are doing in, you know, in the late 1940s, where you usually had white middle class families fleeing New York by this time, or the the beginning of this idea of living out in the suburbs. Right. And post-war. Right. But buying an old dilapidated building, it was a little bit unusual for the day.
1: Now you mentioned she had two loves. I would say she had a third love. Um and that is the love of writing, because she came here, you know, she took a job in stenography, but she wanted to be a writer. And she got a job early on writing short features about the city, about her little explorations of different neighborhoods, and got them published, among other places, in Vogue, where she was getting paid $40 an article.
0: She sounds like she would be a tremendous blogger if she lived today.
1: (laughs) She wouldn't be getting paid $40 a post. No, she wouldn't. (laughs) That's actually really sad. (laughs) However, she was she could get paid um, much more than her stenography job writing these short articles. And by 1943, she left her stenography work to work at Iron Age magazine. So she had entered into publishing at that point. And the next year, started working for the Office of War Information and for the publication called America. That's with a K, Greg. Mm -hmm. Kind of like Life magazine just portrayed America very positively for exports during the war. And that was before she bought the building with her husband on Hudson Street. Right. right? This is all about the same time. Sure. And she would continue, even after the war, working for America all the way until 1952, when the publication moved to Washington, D.C. And so she looked around for another job and found one at Architectural Forum. Um, for
0: Forum Architecture?
1: <laughs> Forum, yes, Architecture. <laughs> she wasn't a trained architect, so she received kind of a crash course from her husband about how to read buildings, how to, how to talk about them and talk about new developments that were underway.
0: And by this time, she was street smart, too, about New York. So she could tie them together.
1: And it was a really important time to be there because it's the early 1950s, and there's a lot of post-war development happening in the New York area, but also elsewhere in the country. And she was interested in the way that city planners were hatching up these new ideas, right, to clear away existing blocks of usually residential and commercial buildings um, and replace them with new modern structures that had a much more futuristic v- vision of what the city should be like, remembering that, as you pointed out before, post-war, there was a real fight going on between you know the future of America being in the cities or being outside the cities and suburbia. So cities were fighting for their own survival, and many were fighting to keep middle-class residents from fleeing to the suburbs. So she found herself here at Architectural Forum, getting to cover architecture and development in this very important phase of American history.
0: But not not just in New York, though, right? She's already looking, casting her gaze over the whole country.
1: And she was sent in 1954 to cover uh, the development that was happening down in Philadelphia. Philadelphia's master builder there, Robert Moses, was a a man named Ed Bacon. And so he was doing all of these modern developments of his own to keep the city sort of relevant and modern. And he took her on this tour of new developments, urban renewal projects that were happening. And she would talk and write later about how she reacted uh, to what she saw. You know, she saw... Basically, he would take her to one street where, where, you know, it kind of reminded her of her West Village neighborhood. You know, lots of people out on the sidewalks and people coming in and out of stores and people hanging out on the stoop. And he'd say, see, this, this is the problem. This is going to be cleared away. And she'd say, "My, my goodness, that looks that looks fantastic. And then he'd say, and we're going to replace it with this. And it was like some characterless concrete building with a big around it with maybe a patch of grass and virtually nobody um, around interacting with each other and she would say later how she turned to him and said but where are all the people
2: why for instance weren't people walking in the areas that uh, all the artist conceptions had shown full of happy promenaders they weren't there why did stores that uh, look very cheerful and um, were supposed to uh, be doing a great booming business in the plans actually uh, go empty or languish. Uh, Why did they look so grim too? Well I would bring these questions up with the people who had been responsible for the planning and building of these places and I couldn't get them very interested in these questions. I got instead quite a lot of alibis, mainly boiling down to uh, uh, people are stupid. They don't do what they're supposed to do. Uh, There was plenty of bafflement, and this was where uh, the curiosity came in. That didn't seem like a sufficient answer. I didn't know what the answers were. I didn't know why uh, people weren't doing what they were supposed to do, but I did know this much, that if people weren't, Uh, behaving in a perfectly natural, everyday way, the way they were supposed to behave, then something was at fault with the theories about how they were supposed to behave. So this really
1: brings up, you know, this central concept, right, in Jane's writings, in her philosophy, in her activism later, which was that there seemed to be a disconnect between what city developers and planners Thought was good for the city, and what would actually be good for residents. It was almost like the planners weren't thinking about the well-being of the residents, or they were in a theoretical way, theoretical
0: human beings, right? Like people, not what they actually did in their everyday life, but what how they should conduct themselves.
1: And to be fair, I think that these developers and planners were absolutely trying to do what was best for the city, right? And they were using these new concepts of the city fighting off middle-class flight by building better roads and new apartment buildings that had parking spaces and things like that. These were ways to hold people into the city and and the roadways would keep them moving about and not frustrated. And so these were well-intentioned, right? But she was looking at the streets. She was looking at the developments and saying, yeah, but the people who live here, their lives are not getting better by these changes and these developments. They're actually getting worse, And the thing is, Greg, Jane wasn't afraid to write how she felt about it. So she wrote a scathing review of what was happening in Philadelphia Mm -hmm. and kind of shook things up, rattled some people, and made others think, who is this crazy woman? Right? (laughs) She doesn't have any formal training. She's not... Is she even qualified to make these kinds of statements? Or? Well,
0: or, Yeah, earlier it said she was a brave person, a brave woman here. So she was going off really with, uh, she had a lot of conviction, it
1: sounds. Right. And th- the next year, in 1955, a minister from Harlem and the head of the Union Settlement of East Harlem brought Jane uh, up to Harlem to the site of some of these big developments that were happening, took her on a tour so that he could show her firsthand how he felt that she was so right in her theories about these new developments not at all being good for the residents. Now, here's a clip of Jane talking about her tour
0: with Kirk.
2: We didn't, um, he didn't seem to have any plan about what he was showing me. Uh, It all seemed very aimless in a way. We would just walk and uh, Since he was a public character, we would stop every little while or somebody would stop him I would eavesdrop on the conversation Uh, We would stop in at stores. We'd stop in at housing projects He'd point out local uh, landmarks uh, Which a local landmark may be a candy store, you know, and nobody else would notice it He'd tell me a little about its history, what went on there. And at first, it seemed, I couldn't understand what he was getting at, why exactly he was telling me these things, except they were all very interesting. But it was a little bit like a, a big basket of dry leaves being thrown up in the air. And uh, what do you make of that? But gradually, it began to make sense to me. I began to see that just out of the accumulation of all of this, that I was beginning to understand how things worked in that area. Many, uh, many little details of cause and effect. Uh, Actually, these same uh, things in slightly different detail, but the same principles, were at work in the area where I lived. But I just had, um, and in many other places, but I just had not thought to look at them in this way.
0: So that experience really had impact on her thinking going forward. Just this little,
1: this eye-opening tour of East Harlem. And all of this would happen right in 56, 57, 58, all at the same time that the Rockefeller Foundation was beginning to award grants um, for research in city planning. And so in 1958, they gave Jane a grant to fund her field research of what was happening in these massive new um, urban development programs and funded for three years. I mean, this is important because not only is she
0: intelligent, bold, and intuitive. Now she's well funded, right. right? Which is always a good thing. And so it's for three of, years. And so it's because of this that she's able to make these like really important strides in a very key moment in New York history.
1: And that research that she would conduct would culminate in the publication of her book in 1961, which I'll talk about in a minute. But the thing that I find amazing. Okay, so all of this is happening, mm-hmm. right? And like her professional career. That is her professional career. Uh She's cycling from Hudson Street up to Midtown where she's working at Rockefeller Center. She's starting to take on the big redevelopment projects uh, that the city is planning And at the same time, when she goes home, back to her West Village apartment, she's confronted with the reality that in the late 1950s, her very park, Washington Square Park, is being threatened by basically demolition or by the prospect of plowing a highway straight through it. So, back up a minute. Like, where did this begin
0: (laughs) with Washington Square Park? Because it's always been a park that's been changed and things moved around a bit. Sure. But also by the 1940s, you're also beginning to see the birth of like bohemians hanging out, folk musicians by the 40s and 50s here, right? Right. So, this is the culture of the park. But now you're saying that the park itself is under threat.
1: It's under threat um, because all powerful parks commissioner and master builder for the city Robert Moses and folk music lover Robert (laughs) Moses Ah. (laughs) no (laughs) just just kidding um he did like to go to the opera. And that's a good point, Greg. Let's bring this up mm-hmm. real quick. Because I think in some ways, if we rewind 100 episodes <laughs> uh, to episode 100 and Robert Moses, I hope um, that we didn't oversimplify his character. Um, because Robert <laughs> Moses was somebody who lived in New York City. He loved New York City. Mm-hmm. He he was maybe the most powerful person in New York City. That's true. For many decades. He loved walking along the city streets, through the parks, going to the opera. Like, he was a New York City dude. He
0: just came at it from a different direction, I guess is a sort of a charitable way to say it.
1: Well, he tackled the biggest problems that were facing the city. And there were daunting problems in the 1930s, during the Depression, and 40s, pre- and post-war, 50s, as people were fleeing to the suburbs, 60s during tensions, mounting racial tensions. Like, he was behind the scenes, behind the administrations during all of those decades fighting to make the city work better. He was building bridges. He was building expressways. He was building tunnels. He was building parks. He was building pools. Okay,
0: okay, but some of these... Massive changes, Mm -hmm. of course, are ripping out things that people find very important and vital to their lives. And so, one of those things being Washington Square Park.
1: Yes, Washington Square Park has the distinction of actually getting in the way of a number of his other projects. Mm -hmm. Okay. In this case, a housing project and slash slum clearance project and an expressway. Project. Now, he was already pushing through the Cross Bronx Expressway in a heartless manner, Mm -hmm. right? At the same time, just driving a wedge through these vital communities in a way that they would never recover from. And he did it in the name of progress to help uh, the flow of traffic, right? And that's what he wanted to do in lower Manhattan. He was so irked by the slowness of traffic. And he thought absolutely that there needed to be expressways built in Lower Manhattan, Midtown, two in Midtown, Upper Manhattan, and 125th Street. I now, mean, to be fair, it is very
0: hard to get across Manhattan. It is, yes, and, and in a speedy, in a speedy, efficient way, and, and to this day,
1: right. And um, and that's part of the legacy of Jane Jacobs. <laughs> Um, The fact that you can get across Canal Street faster by pogo stick than by car (laughs) is a lasting legacy to the fact. By hoverboard, yes. (laughs) By hoverboard. The Midtown Expressways and the 125th would be basically shelved, okay? Mm-hmm. But this Lower Manhattan Expressway still had legs, and he saw it as absolutely vital, especially if the other expressways weren't happening. There had to be one expressway that crossed Manhattan.
0: And this, which they would call Lomex, and which we will call Lomex. Right, uh, for Lower
1: Manhattan Expressway.
0: seemed the most doable, the most natural, because, of course, the buildings that stood in the way Mm -hmm. and the, the structures and the places that were here were older, most of them were run down, very, very old architecture.
1: I think we should probably map this out. The proposed route of the Lower Manhattan Expressway, Lomex, was from the Holland Tunnel down to Broom Street, across Broom Street, all the way over to about Christie and then up to Delancey, right? And and over the Williamsburg Bridge with another splinter that went down Christie um, along Sarah Roosevelt Park mm-hmm. and over the Manhattan Bridge.
0: But essentially, if you can't visualize that, if, but you know those streets, everything on those streets would have been demolished.
1: And it took different forms over the many years because this was first proposed at the end of the 1930s, in 1939, Hmm. and then throughout the 40s and 50s, and it would fight on into the 1960s.
0: Hmm. And that would be an elevated structure that would cut through there.
1: Yes, the initial proposal was to be an elevated 50 feet in the air, okay? And the best part of all for the city, Greg, is that it wouldn't have cost the city very much at all. In fact, you know, there were various figures about how much this thing would cost— $80 million, $100 million, later $150 million. Because of Eisenhower's highway bills, the federal government would fund interstate highways to the tune of about 90%. So Moses knew about this. He saw it coming down the line. So he saw that he could get the federal government to pay 90% of it because it connected new jersey with long island okay so as long as it was part of
0: this bigger structure they could actually like pay less for it
1: right and then the state paid almost 10% the the city of new york was only on the on the hook for a couple hundred thousand dollars it was like mm. really cheap for the city quote unquote to build this thing of course they would have relocation expenses and logistics to deal with but in terms of like building this huge expressway between the federal government and the state government basically the price had been taken care of
0: well moses always knew how to move his chips around the table so to speak in this in this way it's why so many things were funded because he got very clever with funding from different sources and it's and this is it's gripping but Mm -hmm. but back to washington square park here right how does it affect the park
1: it was in the way Washington Square Park was in the way of 5th Avenue traffic going to Lomax, mm-hmm. right? Traffic couldn't couldn't get around it. It didn't make sense the way that it was set up. And so he proposed plowing 5th Avenue straight through the park and calling that four-lane highway. Fifth Avenue South.
0: Hmm. So then they would essentially be two tiny parks as well, opposed to one grand old classic park.
1: <laughs> there were many different proposals to deal with this because the community was not happy. They were mm. not having this. Organizers in the village, including Shirley Hayes, had rallied residents and organized groups to fight these plans. And so they were already very much involved in saving Washington Square. Mm. At a point where Jacobs was busy running around, you know, to Philadelphia and working at Architectural Forum, it wouldn't be until 1958 that Jane Jacobs would attend her first meeting and then get involved with this group to save Washington Square Park. She brought with her a certain know-how of how to work the media and she she had a whole network of architectural critics and other journalists who could help in the cause and Shirley Hayes was also very effective at recruiting like Eleanor Roosevelt to fight on their behalf and they really worked the press you know they they showed pictures of kids their own children playing in the park and conjured up this image that my god you're taking away this leafy paradise and where are our children going to play
0: And she would participate in these huge rallies that would be in the park that would not just be these community organizers, but it would be bringing in these other groups, bringing in the folk singers who who gather on Sunday, gathering the artists and the writers from the coffee shops around the corner. Right. They would bring in all these different energies and focus it here in the park for this one purpose, which was to essentially save their way of life here.
1: And in the end, they won. On June 25th, 1958, the city voted against Moses' plan. And Jacobs and her pro-Washington Square forces celebrated by not cutting a ribbon for the, Mm -hmm. the park, but tying a ribbon around the park. Wow. Even though just a couple blocks south of the park, already Moses had cleared away block after block after block of buildings, and stores in the name of, quote, slum clearance, and had constructed Washington Square Village, mm-hmm. which was part of this master plan to build this new modern city connected by superhighways. This type of housing renewal
0: would sneak back into Jane's life just a few years later.
1: Jane had something, however, even bigger up her sleeve or about to hit the press. And Moses, even though he conceded on his Fifth Avenue South plan, he was ready to push harder than ever to build his lower Manhattan Expressway. So how did this whole battle play out?
0: The battle royale between Jane Jacobs and (laughs) Robert Moses, as we now in legend define it? We'll find out after this. On April 19th, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC. Hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. This episode of the Bowery Boys is brought to you by Harry's. Everyone knows good things come in sets of three. But now, what does that have to do with anything? What is-
1: and now, back to Jane.
2: I don't know whether to be amazed or I suppose I should be flattered that... Um- word got around that I had somehow whipped up this book uh, during the fight uh, as a campaign document. Uh, (laughs) I would love to be able to uh, carry on a job and a fight against the city and whip up a book at the same time. But as a matter of fact, I guess for most writers and certainly for me, uh, writing a book is a very long, lonely process. You feel as if you are talking to yourself interminably. Uh, it's an act of faith. You wonder uh, whether you'll ever really be talking to anybody else besides yourself. So I can't tell you how happy I am to be here after two years of talking to myself and find that I'm talking to somebody else and to such nice people, too.
0: Well, that was Jane talking a little bit about the writing process for the book that would come out... In Late fall of 1961, a book that would, I think, to say it modestly, a book that would change the world. The Death and Life of Great American Cities. Jane had been working on this since 1958, since these trials and tribulations down Mm -hmm. in Washington Square. I would call the book a very sharp, measured, but severe response to about 50 years of urban solutions that were happening, not just here in New York, but all over the United States. All of them so-called evolutions for human urban living. Like the theories of our old chum Le Corbusier. <laughs> there he is. <laughs> these, uh, these domiciles uh, that were essentially towering futuristic like monoliths Mm -hmm. right that were the jetsons exactly it was a we were heading towards a jetson way of life here Mm -hmm. right and so jane her principal theory, jane jane not jetson (laughs) jane jacobs oh i guess
1: that was judy
0: (laughs) (laughs) sorry (laughs) well jane jane was like no these will not work they don't work Actually, because they don't take aspects of human nature in mind, right? Humans cannot live and function in the long run. And uniformity. They have to live and thrive in what she calls diversity. And that's one of the main themes of her book here. Not quite the meaning that we have today of diversity, although it's a slightly incorporated a little bit into that. So what did she mean by
1: diversity? Well,
0: here's a quote from the book, which explains it a little bit. "...public and quasi-public bodies are responsible for some of the enterprises that help make up city diversity. For instance, parks, museums, schools, most auditoriums, hospitals, some dwellings, some offices." However, city diversity is the creation of incredible numbers of different people and different private organizations with vastly different ideas and purposes, planning and contriving outside the formal framework of public action. Now, what essentially that means is you can't have a thriving city or a thriving neighborhood or collection of neighborhoods. If they're all being dictated by one Idea, one frame of mind, that every neighborhood kind of like marches by the beat of its own drum. Mm. And so for that neighborhood to thrive, it must be a collection of different voices that kind of work together.
1: So then this top down style of city planning, whereby like Robert Moses imposes yes. um, a huge housing development, is destined for failure. Is that what she's saying? Yeah,
0: yeah, because it's not taking street level life into account. In fact, one of the biggest components of city life, according to her in this book, is the sidewalk and the dominion of the sidewalk and how crucial it is for neighborhoods because the safest sidewalks are those that are actually in mixed-use areas that have multiple uses, like people live there, people work there, people mm. walk through there, kids play on the sidewalks, postmen deliver the mail here. It's this idea of, total idea, of eyes on the street, that the safest, most usable streets are those that have the most people watching over it unofficially.
1: But don't these new developments also have sidewalks? But they're not naturally developed
0: by a community. It's basically and usually something that's plopped down to replace what was previously there this uh, thing that she really objects to, which is kind of surprising, is the open space idea that, you know, for instance, sometimes dominates Midtown. If you remember our uh, mm-hmm. show, our episode 199, that just because you create an open plaza doesn't mean that people want to hang out
1: there, right? And isn't that funny? So the book comes out in 1961? Yes. The same year as the second zoning law. Well, the, the, the zoning law that we're still sort of dictated by today, right? That allowed so many buildings to go so much higher, as long as they built some kind of open-air plaza at the base. Well, Tom, this is about to get even more coincidental than that in a minute, so keep that
0: in mind, the Um, zoning law. But a quote on the open space from her book, quote, Walk with a planner through a dispirited neighborhood, and though it be already scabby with deserted parks and tired landscaping festooned with old Kleenex... (laughs) He will envision a future of more open space, and she capitalizes those, more open space. More open space for what? For muggers? For bleak vacuums between buildings? But people do not use city open space just because it is there and because city planners or designers wish they would, unquote. Mm. A good point that she makes, uh, and a lot more clever than I'm about to say it, but essentially the people are not stupid, People are not a mindless mass.
1: Mm, following uh, the sort of intentions of planners.
0: Right. Like civic landscapes should never be planned in a way that presumes that the people have no identities that, who are going to actually live there. It's uh, it's interesting because a lot of what she said, there's a lot of really unique ideas and some of them seem a little unusual today to read them, you know, especially as the city's about to plunge into some not great financial times here in the late 60s and 70s, it's interesting to read passages about how strangers are good. Your neighborhood needs to have a lot of strangers pass through it. And you kind of see that as a concept, but it seems like a rather unusual thing to recommend today, right? Well,
1: it sounds like she's a proponent of urban chaos in a way, sort of like like the millions of people inhabiting the city, giving the city its own character and life. And in life to those neighborhoods. Well, right. The the people are actually part of the city and not just someone who's living in the
0: city, if that makes uh, sense. So when did this book come out? So this was the end of the year 1961. Okay. So the context for this release is kind of startling because she had finished the book sort of early in the year of 1961. Now... Tom and I are are at the final stages of producing a book, and it's it's pretty nerve-wracking, right? It's pretty nerve-wracking. Could you imagine putting together the finishing touches, running around, pulling your hair out, and then finding out that your neighborhood was going to be demolished? For that is exactly... uh, The very
1: thing that she's writing about. Yes. She's also about to become subjected to. Yes. And Um, she's just fought off the Fifth Avenue battle. So she saved her park. Just as she literally
0: put, almost literally puts the pencil down to completing her book, comes another crisis which could have been ripped from her own book itself. For on February 21st, 1961, she picked up the New York Times to read the headline, Two Blighted Downtown Areas Are Chosen for Urban Renewal. Okay? Urban renewal being... Code word for tear everything down and build something new, right? Mm-hmm. New housing developments. Now, these two blighted "quote unquote" downtown areas. The first one was bounded by Tenth Street and Thirteenth Street, over way over on the east, so between Avenue C and Avenue D. Okay. Now, as you can you visualize this area today? As you know today, yeah. it is indeed a housing development.
1: Yes, that neighborhood is uh, housing projects, and that came about as a result of this redevelopment, right? right
0: as the an eventual development of okay. this. Now, the the other neighborhood was quote the western edge of Greenwich Village, fourteen blocks bounded by Eleventh, Hudson, Christopher, Washington, Morton, and West Streets. Quote the Greenwich Village site contains a mixture of industrial buildings and tenement buildings with about six hundred families. The board's tentative idea is to establish middle-income housing through rehabilitation and new construction of this section east of Washington Street. Of those streets that I read, Hudson Street, that is Jane Jacobs Street. That's where she lives. This is her neighborhood. We would call most of this area the Far West Village Uh today. This faceless study was making these mass assumptions that Jane, knowing her neighborhood, knew were simply not
1: true. They were assuming that her neighborhood was totally run down. Right. A,
0: a blighted neighborhood, right? But she, as we clearly know, she is literally publishing a book. Singing the praises. <laughs> singing the praises of this very type of neighborhood.
1: And the diversity.
0: Now... Get this, Tom. So all of this is under the Robert Wagner as mayor. Well, this study was conducted by the City Planning Commission, and who was the head of the City Planning Commission, but a man named James Felt. Now he had this torch passed to him, this housing position from Robert Moses. but he felt was the man responsible for the 1961 zoning resolution that ah. you had just mentioned, and that we had mentioned in our last podcast.:
1: My word, he felt <laughs> responsible. <laughs>
0: Jane thought so, too. Jane even took it, and maybe this is taking it personally a little bit too much, but she believed that Moses himself may have had a hand a little bit in identifying this neighborhood for clearance, Mm. you know, because he had just suffered this terrible defeat over on Washington Square. And so that was just a few blocks over from here, right? Right. The New York Herald Tribune quoted Jane as saying, quote, it's the same old story. First, the builder picks the property, then he gets the planning commission to designate it, and then the people get bulldozed out of their homes, Mm. unquote. Well, she was not going to take it anymore. She helped co-chair a committee to save the West Village and went through the neighborhood. She even uh, had her children involved in this as well, went through the whole neighborhood to circulate petitions and get everybody really riled up, right? The Jane and her group, they were headquartered. They would meet most often uh, at this place called the Lion's Head, which was a famous old tavern. You know, it used to be near Stonewall on Christopher Street for several decades. But back in 1961, it was actually at the corner of Hudson and Charles. So this was kind of their base of mobilization. There's even a famous photograph of Jane Jacobs enraged inside of Lion's Head. She got k- prominent politicians involved here. Like, she had learned lessons from Washington Square. Like, she knew how to get the media involved. She knew how to get people activated about this kind of thing. She got politicians like Ed Koch and John Lindsay involved here, mm-hmm. you know, both, both of the, future, mayors. future mayors, but at this time they were just regular politicians who who joined in the cause here. She even got neighbors themselves to do a makeshift study of, of the condition of housing in the neighborhood to disprove all the alleged information that had been published. She also filed a lawsuit against the city that very spring, Jacobs versus the city of New York, forcing the city to justify its decisions here to demolish this part of the West Village.
1: So how did this end? I'm assuming she won. Well, I mean, in a in a
0: very striking and dramatic way. And This aggressive campaign culminated in a fiery City Hall meeting in October 18th. A story on the front page of the paper the next day said, quote, angry Greenwich villagers caused an uproar in City Hall yesterday when the City Planning Commission designated their neighborhood a blighted area suitable for urban renewal. The villagers, led by Miss Jane Jacobs, chairman of the Committee to Save the West Village, leaped from their seats and rushed forward they shouted that a deal had been made with the building developer that the mayor had been double-crossed and that the commissioner's action was illegal james felt the commission chairman sought vainly to restore order by pounding his gavel then he called on the police to remove the unruly from the room felt then called a recess sent for more policemen and then left the room the villagers remained in their seats, chanting, down, with, felt, down, with, felt, until the meeting resumed nearly an hour later. So it was getting very heated here. So on October 23rd, 1961, this plan to give this area up for housing renewal, well, it was permanently shelved. And then one year later, felt stepped down from the city planning commission. So in 1962, like he had had enough and... And yet another community victory by Jane Jacobs.
1: So things seem like they're going well for Jane, right? Well, the, the book's out, great reviews. Now she's she's her neighborhood's saved again. And after they helped save Washington Square Park, the city threw Lomex on the back burner for a little while. But in 1962, it resurfaced as a project uh, that was being pushed forward by Mayor Wagner. Now... This story gets a little bit complicated. Greg, I'm showing you this binder. Do
2: you Whoa. see these
1: paper clips here? All of these sheets of paper. These are. Were you camped w- in front of a microfiche machine or something? We don't really have time to go through <laughs> all of these probably on this, but let's just say this stack is from 1962. These are mm-hmm. all pieces in the New York Times. By the way, the New York Times was not entirely, shall we say, sympathetic to Jane Jacobs and the hmm. rabble rousers of the village, uh, they were finding more sympathetic press from the uh, Village Voice and sure, from the sense. Villager newspaper. The Times was more sympathetic to Robert Moses. So when you dig through the Times archive, you see, you know, plenty of big profiles. Like here's a big thing from 1962, a feature on Robert Moses where he's, quote, Moses berates critics of cities, so he takes on the critics. He doesn't mention Jane Jacobs. However, just four months after Moses criticizes everybody, Mayor Wagner announces that he is resurfacing the downtown expressway plans. The very same plans
0: that would have ripped through Broom Street, Kenmar Street, essentially all of Soho and much of the West Village, right?
1: Right. It's a little bit later. Plans have shifted. They tweaked some of the plans. But things were different now because there had been so many fights against Robert Moses and against the city. Neighborhoods felt a little bit more emboldened now to try to fight the city and protect their neighborhoods. Well, again, this was a thing from her book,
0: giving power to the community. And so it seemed like they were empowered.
1: So Soho in Little Italy is looking at this horrible Lomax um, development. And they recruit Jane Jacobs in 1962 to fight alongside them. She, in turn, you know, brings in other people to the fold. In the summer of 62, Eleanor Roosevelt even writes a letter in support of the neighborhood and against the projected development from the August 10th, 1962, New York Times Quote, nearly 100 persons staged a protest last night to the proposed $100 million Lower Manhattan Expressway. Under a steady downpour, the march began at 7.30 p.m. at Sullivan and Broome Streets and zigzagged Crosstown to Broome Street between Mott and Mulberry Streets. There, 13 speakers stressed that the elevated highway would needlessly uproot nearly 2,000 families from the Broome Street area and called upon New Yorkers to oppose its construction. And they scored a victory on December 6th after a testy six-hour city council meeting in which one of her allies, an assemblyman named Luis Salvio, actually... Created quite a stir early in the morning by saying that, quote, only one old man whom he described as, quote, stubborn and cantankerous was in favor of the expressway. (laughs) He did not mention any names. Oh, (laughs) I think we know who that stubborn old man was. Mr. Cantankerous. Later in the article, Mrs. Jane Jacobs, chairman of... Stopped the Lower Manhattan Expressway Committee, called the proposed highway a, quote, monstrous and useless folly. She dismissed arguments for the plan as piffle. Indeed, the, the mayor shelved it again. It was a victory for the community activists. And it seemed like Broom Street had been saved. That was 1962, mm-hmm. end of the year. However, Greg, only six years later, Lomex would once again rear its ugly head Robert Moses was not going down. He was <laughs> nearing the very end of his very long and illustrious mm-hmm. career, and he wanted this damn expressway to be built. His reputation had been severely
0: damaged by this time, by many things, not least of which the World's Fair was won in 1964-65. Right.
1: However, they had modified their plan to make it somewhat more attractive. They decided that it would be a depressed Roadway that is that it would go underground right and then kind of be covered a, a bit so imagine standing on the south side of Broome Street looking north and seeing a crevice in front of you right and <laughs> way down underneath a uh, a super highway a sunken super highway right this <laughs> was now the eighth time that Lomex had been proposed right it's now the belower Manhattan Expressway <laughs> the belower. <laughs> And now it would only displace 800 families and move 400 businesses. Oh, okay. They even tried to sweeten the deal by announcing that Seward Park High School mm-hmm. uh, in the Lower East Side would build an annex over lomex because it would be depressed and you know into the ground so there would be all this room over it these air rights could be given off to schools and other community functions and that there'd be these great outdoor spaces that could be sort of built around the peripheries and over it
0: yeah this doesn't sound very much like the diversity that jane jacobs spoke about in her book sounds like the opposite
1: or fresh air
0: Or fresh air yes
1: Well, speaking of Seward Park uh, High School, on April 10th, 1968, they held the big hearing, right, in which the public was invited to come and speak to the planning committee about this. It was packed with protesters, of course, including Jane Jacobs, who turned to address the crowd of many of her friends and community activists. And when they realized that they weren't really being listened to, by the, uh, the people in charge sitting on the stage, they decided to do something dramatic. About 50 protesters from the audience started chanting and rushed toward the stage and marched up the stage uh, where the officials were seated along with the stenographer and marched across it as officials yelled to stop this madness in the rather chaotic moment, the rolls of the stenographer's notes were tossed into the air. Right <laughs> in this dramatic, in this dramatic moment, and and Jacobs yelled out, "Hooray!" You know, now there are no notes. There's no like official record that this meeting has even taken place. They haven't fulfilled their obligation to ha- to to have this community meeting. Long story short, she was arrested. And what, what mayhem she in, in him caused! And a week later, she wasn't just charged with some light charge of disorderly conduct. She was charged with inciting a riot, (laughs) 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 which seems a little bit heavy-handed. And so, in 1969, Mayor Lindsay officially killed off the Lower Manhattan Expressway, saying that it was dead, quote, for all time. That is thanks to... Years of work by community organizers, including Jane Jacobs. Ironically,
0: though, by that point, Jane Jacobs, who had been instrumental in defeating Lomax and all these other devastating and destructive development projects, Jane and her family had moved out of New York by this time and moved to
1: Canada. And her move was caused not by her years of battles with Robert Moses, but because her her husband had accepted a position in Toronto uh, designing a hospital and because two of her sons, were old enough to be drafted into the Vietnam War, something to which she was incredibly opposed. And in fact, on top of everything else, Greg, that arrest that she had at Seward Park High School, that was Mm -hmm. not her first arrest. Um, (laughs) Oh, she'd had a few, yeah. She had had several. And in 1967, she had been arrested, along with many other activists, including Susan Sontag, in a three-day anti-war rally. So she was also an anti-war demonstrator. And... Felt strongly enough about it that uh, they were inclined to move to Canada, and they did so in the summer of 1968. And lived there for the rest of her life, right? She did, and she continued to follow the developments on Lomex uh, reading about it in the newspapers from Toronto. Also, living in Toronto, she continued to finally focus on her writing. She went on to write several more books in 1969. Uh, a book called The Economy of Cities, which was about the urban nature of economics. In 1980, the question of separatism on the fight for Quebec's independence. Four years later, um, a book called Cities and the Wealth of Nations. Her husband, Robert, died in 1996, and Jane passed away in 2006 in Toronto.
0: Now, there there is an interesting souvenir of the Jane Jacobs' legacy, I would say, that still exists in the Far West Village. And it represents a lot of the strengths and maybe a few of the weaknesses of a lot of the Jane Jacobs' philosophy for the city, right? So these are the West Village houses, a group of 42 buildings that were built in that area that was going to be demolished partially, right? They were conceived by Jacobs and others in the 1960s, but they didn't get built and opened until 1974, they're more thoughtful to the ideas that Jane proposed. They were low-rise buildings. They're arguably more connected into the community, and they're not closed off as many of these big garden city complexes had been. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, though, because now we're in the 1970s, they were more financially troubled and uh, because of the horrible housing market at the time. And, you know, Jane was not privy to the inner workings of financing this type of building in New York City. So it took a very really long time. And from our vantage today, they're not as aesthetically pleasing as other housing structures in that particular neighborhood. Today, those are co-ops, though, and the people still live there today. And it's certainly an important component of the West Village. Now, her legacy is interesting because what would we do today in New York City without Jane Jacobs, right? I mean, so many neighborhoods have been influenced by her viewpoints. A lot of people accuse her of you know setting gentrification onto its current ascent right that the idea of preserving these neighborhoods basically just makes them open for people with greater wealth and greater means to move into these neighborhoods right because, because they're functioning
1: and wasn't she attacked on this even when her book came out that You know, on one hand, you had the city trying to build affordable and middle class housing. And she was saying, no, don't put up all that affordable housing. Keep the status quo, keep the sort of chaos of the city streets and, you know, let it sort of work itself out. Her position was actually applauded by people, ironically, on the right. You know, mm-hmm. who wanted the economy to sort of like d- deal with it, uh, you know, let the forces of the market deal yeah, with yeah. things instead of city planners coming in and trying to help other people out
0: she had a very middle class viewpoint right that this is how an ideal middle class neighborhood should operate but of course that leaves a lot of people out and you know also to be fair a lot of this is a very white perspective and it doesn't take on a lot of the nuances especially the things that happened later in more minority neighborhoods although and
1: i'm so, sure she would take issue with that
0: and she, she would it, it's more of a naive point of view not not so much that she was completely blind to it
1: well and i think she would take issue with that being that she you know so much of her formation of her philosophy happened in east harlem
0: but i can't help think i mean especially going through all of this her incredible story here how much some of it is really almost plucked from today's headlines right how a lot of her ideas are almost more vibrant and important than ever
1: I would say that many of these concepts are now sort of core principles in the new urbanism Mm -hmm. movement, right? That it's about sustainability, sustainable neighborhoods. So for that, we say thank you, Jane. Thanks, Jane. And
0: thank you, listener, for joining us on this celebration of the life of Jane Jacobs.
1: And for more on this, I would recommend uh, the book Wrestling with Moses by Anthony Flint, how Jane Jacobs took on New York's Master Builder and Transform the American City. It's a great read that really documents the battle between Jacobs and Robert Moses. Check out the blog,
0: com, where I'll have a variety of pictures of Jane in various scenes of strife and protest. And a, a, may- and a few, I'm sure, of Lomax. Oh, and a few of Lomax, the very frightening uh, drawings, depictions of what
1: Lomax would have looked like. Of course, join us on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram. And a special thank you to all of our patrons who have joined us with their support at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. We have a special for our patrons coming out. Greg and I will be reading excerpts from our forthcoming book, Bowery Boys Adventures in Old New York, which is for sale, -sale, (laughs) pre-sale, and we're just actually wrapping up the final third round edits. I'm actually, Greg, going to be um, heading to Jane's Old Neighborhood right now to stomp around the West Village and do uh, just one last fact check of the map. Wow, excellent.
0: Well, you'll never see it the same way again. You'll probably want to include Jane in, in more <laughs> in more entries. So thanks for joining us for our special 200th episode. Tom, I didn't get us any cake, but maybe uh, maybe we could just get a cocktail later.
1: <laughs> so, it is St. Patrick's Day. Oh,
0: that's true. Well, thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live
1: here or not.